This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. All right, Bill, still a good time to talk? This is a good time to talk. Excellent. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Our guest today is professor of church history at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He previously taught at several other institutions and earned his Ph.D. in church history from the University of Aberdeen. He has contributed to a number of books and most recently has written The Quest for the Historical Adam, Genesis, Hermeneutics, and Human Origins. And that's the topic we're going to discuss today. So, Bill Van Duderweerd, thank you for joining us today and for discussing this really important topic. Well, thanks, Jonathan, for uh, inviting me uh, onto uh, your podcast, and it's, uh, it's great to be with you. You know, I should have said something in the introduction, Bill, but I think it's also fair for me to tell our viewers or our, our listeners that I recently learned that you are much more fit than I am um, as we played soccer against each other just a month or so ago. So in addition to your expertise on the historical Adam, you are you are in better shape than me, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> I don't know about that. We were, I think we were pretty evenly, uh, pretty evenly paced there on the soccer field, but uh, it was certainly uh, a stretching activity for, yes, uh, for guys who was. are, you know, pushing 40 and beyond. It was, it was, it was. Well, let's dive right into this. Um, what are some of the current views out there today about the historical Adam? What are the different ways people approach the issue of, you know, whether or not Adam and Eve existed and, and how we view these accounts in Genesis 1 through 3? Well, I think there are really, you could say, probably five categories, uh, give or take. There's a little bit of fluidity between some of these. Um, I think, uh, first off, you, you have sort of the historical view that uh, Adam was specially created by God on the sixth day of creation, uh, understood in a, in a literal, as we would popularly term it, interpretation of the Genesis text. And so Adam is created from the dust of the ground. as Life is breathed into him. Uh, this creation is apart from any evolutionary processes. He's the first human uh, created in God's image. And then Eve is created from his rib, from his side. Uh, so that would be the first view. The second view uh, would be similar to this, um, but without the time frame of six days of ordinary duration, so not within a day of ordinary duration. It just God did this at some unknown point in the ancient past, and so Adam's still created without ancestry, apart from any evolutionary processes. He is the first human. Eve is uh, the first woman as his uh, wife but it's uh, typically placed into what we would call an Old Earth context, uh, which would necessitate sort of a different hermeneutical approach uh, when you come to Genesis 1, which can play into uh, Genesis 2 as well. The third view, uh, we get here into the evolutionary views. Again, the third view uh, category is one here that rests on a hermeneutical alternative to what we call the literal tradition. Uh, and this view is that Adam was created through natural processes plus uh, supernatural divine intervention, or natural processes guided uh, by God. 
and that this occurred again at some unknown point in the ancient past. Evolution played a role in Adam's creation. He had animal ancestry, but God intervened. And uh, there are a variety of views here, uh, but all say that God did something special. And whether this was in Adam's conception uh, or making him human after he was born or some point in the womb, uh, he becomes human even though his biological parents were not. And uh, in this third category, uh, you would have some arguing that God's intervention included changing Adam's physical constitution. But others argue that what made Adam here different from his biological parents was that God gave him a spiritual constitution or a soul. So the imparting of a soul was what set Adam apart from his uh, animal ancestors. Then there's a fourth category, which takes a step beyond this, and it says Adam developed really in the same way as the third view, but he's just an individual that God entered into a relationship with. And so there's no constitutional change of any sort, physical or spiritual. However, God makes himself known to Adam, and Adam uh, becomes religious, uh, spiritually aware of God, and this is what made Adam human. And so it's a relational shift, uh, not a constitutional change. And then the fifth view is that there was no Adam. Uh, Adam is simply a figure or type for early humanity as a category. Uh, they would argue that uh, evolutionary theory um, simply precludes having an Adam or Eve. And so I think those are the five categories uh, that, that really catch the sweep of what we see today. Now, of those five categories, much of your research focused on the history of this doctrine. And of those five categories, let's start with the history. Which of those is best represented in the stream of Orthodox Christian history? Is there a dominant view? Are there one or two dominant views? Or do we see all of them in equal measure throughout the history of the Church? Yeah, I would say uh, number one is clearly the dominant view. That would be the view that Adam and Eve were specially created by God on the sixth day, um, as understood in a literal interpretation of the Genesis text, so created without ancestry and not through any evolutionary process. Uh, that, that would be by far the predominant view. You have some early church fathers who would argue that uh, this creation really took place instantaneously, uh, like Augustine would be an example of that. Um, but you don't really get the second category of an ancient earth with Adam being created just somewhere in history uh, until we come uh, to really the early, mid-enlightenment period in the 1700s. And... Um, you know, it's really geological theory um, and comparative religious studies that push some thinkers to argue for an ancient earth and thus posit Adam simply somewhere in the past. Uh, the, the other three views are really post-Darwinian views. Okay, okay, so that's helpful. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is, in your research, there was a 
relatively strong consensus in the early church. Were, were there any debates about that, or was it just an assumed reading? I mean, apart from the difference between, you, you mentioned the Augustinian view of instantaneous creation and the, the sort of seven-day view, but, but apart from that, uh, were, were, there, were there major disagreements, or were the, was this something that was just understood from the text of Genesis? Yeah, I would say, uh, Jonathan, this was something just understood from the text of Genesis, and uh, it's really wide, uh, sweeping understanding. Uh, it's interesting to me that the first challenge comes through what's called pre-Adamite thought, and it has nothing to do with evolution, but it's root- rooted in a in a, a medieval uh, Jewish stream of thought, which was argued to be influenced by sort of a Kabbalistic thought, uh, and that was that only the Jews were the descendants of Adam. God created Adam, and the Jews were Adam's descendants. And nobody really knew where the rest of humanity came from, the Gentile nations. And so it was sort of a, a supremacist view. And a man named Isaac Lapierre, uh, who was uh, raised in a Huguenot setting, but really uh, moved into a, a uh, really a, a rationalism, adopted this uh, in conjunction uh, with some new ideas that were surfacing through exploration, Chinese history, other history, uh, feeling that uh, there must have been other peoples before Adam. And this explained for uh, for instance, uh, later on, Australian Aborigines, um, people of African descent, etc. And so, so that movement uh, forms and develops as really a precursor to Darwin's thought. Uh, of course, Darwin takes it in a different direction as he seeks to you know, build a scientific system. What about the biblical evidence? Could I ask you to just briefly touch on that? You mentioned that it was it was sort of unquestioned and 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 more or less read in a uniform way in the early church. Um, is that as you as you did the exegetical spade work yourself? Uh, did you did, did you come to the same conclusions that the most reasonable reading of this was was in keeping with your your first of the five conclusions about historical Adam? Yeah, that's certainly my conviction. Uh, uh, in terms of exegetical work, um, the book that I, I worked on really provides a survey of Scripture on the creation of man, on human origins. And I think as we walk through both uh, the Old Testament and New Testament, it becomes uh, very clear that the, the writers of Scripture uh, view Adam and Eve as uh, the beginning of the human race and that being without precursors. So, so even if I'm unsure on first reading about the genre of Genesis one through three, what you're saying is right. there are, there are a number of other passages which clearly build upon a kind of historical reading of that. Could, could you could you just highlight a few of those for the sake of our listeners? Sure. Yeah, I would say uh, just as you walk through. Uh, you know, you can move on to Deuteronomy 4, uh, where it speaks. Uh, uh, Moses says there, Ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. Uh, you move along to uh, 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 1. You have this genealogical list that spans from Adam uh, to the returned exiles. 
Uh, Job makes allusion to the fact that God is the one who has uh, fashioned him and uh, speaks of uh, God himself saying, look at, look at the behemoth which I made along with you. Uh, I think as we walk through the Psalms, so we see numerous references in the Psalms. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, as you walk uh, through the scriptures, and then as, particularly as we come to the New Testament again, uh, Jesus saying in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, uh, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, you know, Jesus taking there a very uh, literal understanding of Genesis chapter 2 uh, in terms of where does marriage come from? Where do man and woman come from uh, in this uh, connection? of marriage. Uh, Luke 3, genealogy, traced back to Adam. Uh, Romans 5, uh, Paul, highlighting the connection between Adam and Christ. And so I think there is, uh, there's abundant ground from the rest of Scripture uh, to see that uh, Adam is clearly and essentially must be uh, the, first, the first man. Now, now, what's at stake in this debate? I mean, obviously, we're talking about the most ancient of ancient histories. And so why is this such a big deal? Is it the kind of thing where we can say, listen, there are a number of different views and people see the evidence differently, so we shouldn't make a big thing of it? Or, or, or why is it important? Obviously, it's important, it was important enough to you to, to, to engage in a significant, significant and helpful research project on it, but wh why was that? Yeah, I, because I, I'm convinced, particularly as I've, I've traced this through the history of the church, uh, particularly into the 19th and 20th century, that as um, Genesis is unraveled uh, through alternate hermeneutical approaches, and particularly where that's synthesized with an evolutionary hypothesis on human origins, uh, that it, it, it directly places the gospel of Jesus Christ at stake. Um, you know, accepting an atom with evolutionary origins immediately impacts what it means to be human, created by God in his image. Uh, and this is closely knit to the personal work of Christ. Uh, Christ is the one uh, by whom all things were created. And, uh, you know, as we adjust to what it means to be human, we also immediately impact the incarnation of Christ. There are other problems, I think, really a Pandora's box that opens up. Uh, the doctrine of sin. Uh, you know, if Adam had parents, if he had others living around him, uh, how, how does the doctrine of sin relate to them? Um, particularly if you take one of the latter views where it's simply a relational change or the impartation of a soul. Um, you get into issues of ethics, uh, death, suffering, uh, the goodness of God. You know, how, does, how is it a very good creation of God if Adam's parents, grandparents, are suffering and dying? 
living lives that include violence. Uh, you know, raising questions about sexuality uh, prior to the garden. Yeah. And so I think there's just there are a multitude of rabbit trails by which this uh, ripples out. Um, but ultimately, it, it really hits strongly at places like Romans 5, uh, where if we lose a specific historical atom and a specific historical fall uh, into sin in, in, a, in, a, in a created environment that was very good, uh, that immediately impacts the gospel itself, the doctrine of Christ, uh, his work of salvation. Uh, what was that work of salvation? And so, well, that that that's there that, are many those, angles that we could go to. Yeah, yeah, th- those are those are those are helpful avenues and 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 sobering thoughts. Uh, last question, and I wonder if you could just maybe point us in some directions even beyond your book, which I would which I would highly commend, The Quest for the Historical Adam, Genesis, Hermeneutics, and Human Origins. But Bill, I wonder if you could say a number of people have charged that this is a sort of Galileo moment for the church, uh, a place where we need to abandon a, a kind of flat earth notion or, or, or abandon the notion that the that the sun re- revolves around the earth. There's something like that, that, that perhaps in different periods of history people people thought. Um, why is it that you would see this as qualitatively different? And, 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 then, and then as a follow-up to that, what resources could you give people to say, no, this, this very, very critical doctrine is actually uh, reputable and, 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 and un- understandable in light of maybe even not just current church history research, but maybe even current scientific research? I know that's a big question, but I wonder if you could address that here at the end. Sure, that is a big question, um, and again, uh, the the essential way that I would answer it is that we need to be operating on presuppositions that are driven by God's special revelation to us. Uh, you know, God asks Job, "Where were you when I created?" Uh, and as we look back down the tunnel of time and uh, seek to reconstruct the past, uh, you know, what is going to be our guide in that, our directive in that, our parameters in that. Um, I believe that um, science is helpful. It's a tool that can be used, uh, but the hermeneutic that we use in science needs to be a hermeneutic that's guided and directed by the parameters of the word. And that means at times that we may still have unanswered questions. Um, But are we willing to uh, humbly uh, stand and look at scripture, comparing scripture to scripture internally and contextually do our exegesis and say, God has spoken. And this is what he has said. I think the challenge in the opposite direction is that uh, right now we are seeing uh, there's there's a series uh, roundtable going on at Christianity Today's Books and Culture, where I'm participating with uh, eight other men, and six of them are strongly arguing that we need to entirely abandon Adam. 
And uh, they're arguing that sort of the middle position is really an ad hoc position. Uh, it's arbitrary. And it's, it's ironic. We, we kind of agree from opposite ends that uh, sort of the evolutionary atoms or the in-between uh, views don't match the account that we find in Genesis and in the rest of Scripture. Uh, their solution is we need to do a wholesale uh, reassessment of not only our approach to Genesis 1 and 2, but to the entire body of Christian theology. Uh, and uh, I would say to the contrary uh, that, uh, that that's a path that's been trod before, and uh, we've seen this over several times, um, beginning in the 18th and 19th centuries, and it's just simply been a departure from scriptural Christianity. And so, uh, I don't know if you want to ask a follow-up there. No, that's I mean, the, I mean the that, parameters that, that I'm thinking of there. That, that's helpful. I, I wonder if you could just um, maybe as a as a final sort of a follow-up, give some recommendations for resources, even beyond your book, which again highly sure. commend people to even start there, but other resources that you would find you have found helpful and that you would point perhaps church members to. Uh, who are who are really wrestling with this topic and and the rhetoric that's out there? Absolutely, uh, there are two great books that have just come out that I would highly commend. Uh, Richard Gaffin's No Adam No Gospel, uh, which is done by PNR just out this year, and then uh, the Alliance has put out uh, on the basis of their conference, I think from two years back, a series of collected essays uh, edited by Richard Phillips uh, called uh, God Adam and You which is a, a fabulous collection of essays that deal with uh, many of these points that we've generally discussed here together in uh, far greater detail and uh, do so from a, a sound, historic, a scriptural uh, position. Bill Van Duterward, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thanks also so much for your labors in the gospel on behalf of this important issue and others as well. So thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a privilege to be with you. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's Church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.